Jonah chapter 2 is where we find ourselves. And I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. And then I will uh, pray for us. So I'm actually going to start in verse 17 of chapter 1. The word of God says this. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me, and then I said, I've been driven away from your sight. How shall I again look upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And yet, you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, O God. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Father, we just ask. We ask that you would move in our time. We ask that you would help us. You would help us to see the beauty that you bring out of the ashes of our desperation. The strength that you can bring out of our weakness. And so, Father, we just pray that as we spend this time together, that our hearts would be filled with celebration of your powerful rescue in our lives. And that hope would abound. That, Father, we would put away worthless, vain idols and we would give ourselves wholly to your name. And so as we spend this time together, change us, I ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today is Super Bowl Sunday. That's not the most important thing that we do today, but it is what is happening today. The interesting path on how these two teams got to the Super Bowl follow, ironically, a fairly similar storyline. The Patriots were down by 14 points twice in their game to the Ravens and ended up coming back to a victory that lands them in the Super Bowl. Like the Patriots, the Seahawks were down by 14 plus points and after um, some mishaps, sorry Packers fans uh, in the room, I know we have a lot of you, um, the 
Seahawks ended up coming back and winning. And now they are in the Super Bowl. When Russell Wilson was interviewed after that game, he could not compose himself anymore. And he broke down into a massive amount of tears. Because he had had, statistically, and in his career, one of the worst games he had ever played. Four interceptions and was just not doing well. But he just came at the end and there was some victory. And at the risk of losing everyone here who is a Patriots fan or a Packers fan, I'm not going to say I'm picking the Seahawks or anything like that. But I will say this. It was the sense of desperation that the Seahawks felt that led to the tears and the sense of thanksgiving that Russell Wilson put forth. Now, this is meant to be the way it works in our spiritual lives. The better we understand how desperate of a situation we really are in, the more thankful, the more humbled we are by the rescue, by the victory that God works in our hearts. And this is exactly what we begin to see as we dive into the book of Jonah today. Jonah finds himself thinking he is dying. On the brink of death. Desperate beyond desperate. Not even comparable to the trivial nature of football. But what we see is that God in His amazing grace, He shows up and He rescues in great power. And so today what we want to look at is this big overarching theme of rejoicing in rescue. Rejoicing in rescue. And there are three things that we are meant to take away as the readers of this passage are meant to take away from what we read here in chapter 2. Number one is we're meant to take away the desperate cry for deliverance. The desperation of Jonah is meant to land upon us. And it's meant to land on us because that's exactly how we are. Desperate. The desperate cry for deliverance. The second thing we're supposed to notice is God's gracious rescue. That He shows up in the moment of desperation and He shows out in great power and He rescues in some unconventional ways. And then three is when grace is seen, grace will be responded to. And so what we notice at the end of this chapter is the response to the rescue. The desperate cry for deliverance, God's gracious rescue and a response to that rescue. So let's get going and look at this first point, the desperate cry for deliverance. All of this is in the hopes that we would rejoice in God's rescue for sinners. We begin in verse 17. Before we get to the desperation, we get a sense at this very beginning juncture of God's greatness. You can't package God's greatness into one point of this entire message. It is interlaced throughout it. He is not meant to be kind of categorized and confined to just one little aspect of this passage. He is the hero of this entire thing. 
And so as you look at verse 17, it is clear. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We have in this passage what we had in last week's message in chapter 1. Our God is in control over creation, over all things. He was hurling the wind. He was stopping it. And now he says, fish, come. Open up mouth. Swallow, don't chew. Our God is pretty amazing. This is not a fairy tale. And this is not for some of you who know the veggie tales. This is much more profound than what veggie tales gives to it. We have a God who says, there's a fish. It's not like he created it just special for this. There is a sense that God told the fish that already was there wandering around, fish, come here. At this moment, now open, now swallow through the esophagus. That has to be big enough for a human. Don't crush him. Don't digest him. Don't excrete him. Let him stay there for three weeks or three days and three nights. And then, at the end of the story, he says, when I tell you, you throw him up on dry land. This word appointed is used four times in the book of Jonah. It's God's control over the fish. Number two, it's God's control in chapter four over a plant to rise up and to give shade to weary Jonah. It's also put that God then brings a worm To take the plant away. And destroy the plant. And then God appoints. Not only a plant. Not only a worm. Not only a great fish. But God appoints a scorching east wind. To make Jonah physically weak. Over and over. God is working. And he is working to bring Jonah to where he needs to be. Jonah is not wanting to follow God at all times. And so God is crafting, moving situations, appointing things so that Jonah would submit his life wholly to God. Now, Jesus does some pretty amazing things when it comes to God's control over all creation. He does this in Matthew 6, and he's meaning to take his father's control over everything and comfort his people. And so in Matthew 6, 26, he says this. This is a note to all of you anxious ones out there. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He says, worm, come up so that it can eat. He says, seed, be near here. He says, bird, I will help you find this. God feeds birds. And so he says, are you not more valuable than them? And he says, therefore, trust me to take care of you. 
Because God is sovereign over all creation, it is meant to evoke the reader of this passage and the people of God that are gathered here that you can trust Him with every single thing that's going on in your life. Everything that might cause anxiety. You can trust Him because you're more valuable than birds. And He takes care of birds. But He also speaks when it comes to God's sovereign control over creation, just like He appoints fish and plants and winds and worms. Jesus speaks to it to say this in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 28 through 31. He takes a different angle. And he says, And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? That means... They're not worth much. And not one of them falls to the ground apart from God saying, live or die. When a bird falls to the ground, it happens because God has said that should happen. His permission, His will, attending to even the, as He's saying, the least valuable of creatures maybe. And He then says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered, so fear not therefore, you're of more value than the sparrows. Don't be afraid of what people think. Be afraid of the one who has your eternity in his hands. This great sense that God is over everything. He's over fish. He's over creation. He's over winds and rains and ice and snow is meant to evoke a holy sense of fear that is eerily comforting. Do you put those two together? It is, entrust your life to this powerful, gracious, sovereign God who is ruling over this entire book. Full surrender ushers forth a sense of full confidence. And Jonah is getting ready to understand in a fuller way that God is in control of all things. Because he's just been thrown over and swallowed up. God is to be feared, church. And yet he cares for you. As one who is valuable to him. And so ultimately, even in this passage that says God is the appointing God. It is ultimately for Jonah and for us to be able to say, resting in this sovereign God is the safest place to be rather than running from God, which is the most dangerous path you can take. And so now Jonah in the belly of the fish. And fish in this context, it's just the way that the Bible would refer to a an animal, an aquatic creature. We have no idea whether it was a whale or what kind of fish it was. But it's just a general category and it could have been a whale. But this massive fish swallows up Jonah. And now verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, and he says... And now verse 2 kind of sets up the whole poem. This now begins a song, a psalm, which is a song. It's a poem that is 
putting forth what Jonah has said in the belly of this fish. And so, verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. You see the parallelism. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. I called out to the Lord, I cried. And He answered me, and it says, Oh God, You heard my voice. Do you see that? So there is setting up for us a crying out to God and God hearing and answering. And that's how this is shaped. You have him crying out to God in verses 2 through the beginning of verse 6. And then you have God's answering him through the end of the song. But these words are meant to kind of have an acute sense upon us. As we read through this, this is something that we don't always do when we're just reading the Bible at home. We kind of sometimes can just read through and just kind of take it in real quickly, get the story and move on. When you come to these poems, they, they bring forth metaphors, images, and poetry many times in the middle of narrative is meant to describe what that narrative is saying and gives kind of general pointers beyond just the immediate context. So this is not just a poem describing Jonah's situation, but it is meant for the reader to absorb as well and identify with both the sense of desperation and the glad-heartedness over rescue. And so, with the metaphors that will be used... We also know that Jonah experienced a lot of these things in his journey here. And so it says at the very beginning, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. This word distress, it's like anguish. It's like despair. It is, it's hard to bring it out. It's, it's, it's the gut of just Major anxiety mixed with sadness, mixed with fear. It's just everything that's going on in the heart. It is distress. The Psalms use this word a ton. Psalm 116 verse 3 talks about the snares of death are all around me and it brings distress. Psalm 31 talks about um, the distress of the human soul, the anguish Deep down within the soul. And this is what Jonah is experiencing. And why is that? Let's read on. He says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. You need to hear crying, not just generally, God help here. He's just been tossed into the raging sea. And now this is about ready to describe the emotions that he is feeling. This sense of crying out. And so, although he's in the belly of the fish praying to God, he is also describing what he experienced as he was in the raging waters. And so, it says that out of the belly of Sheol, this kind of gives us a window into what he is describing because Sheol was the place of the dead. He is believing that he is in a near-death scrape. And so he talks this way. Look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. 
I personally cannot think of too many ways that would terrify me more regarding death than drowning in a raging sea. That just does not sound appealing to me at all. And so, when Jonah describes this, if you just read it, you don't let it land. But if you read slowly and meditate, there's this appropriate sense of fearful desperation that is meant to come over the reader. He says, The flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows have passed over me. This is used in the Psalms regularly for a sense of despair that leads to death. A sense of my life is almost over. And it's like the billows and waves have come over me. And then I said, I am or I have been driven away from your sight. He is recounting how he has run from God. And now this is the just due to what he has done. Have you ever been there? Have you ever known that you did wrong? And then after knowing you did wrong, now you're experiencing some of the consequences of that? And as you experience the consequences of that, you battle, this is what I deserve. And many times, for many of you, whether it's financial debt, you made a wrong decision. Whether it is infidelity in a relationship and what you look at or how you treat other people. Whether it's anger that leads to distance or whether it's lying that leads to distrust. Whether it's you have betrayed someone. All of a sudden, the guilt comes over. And you are experiencing what Jonah is experiencing here. I deserve... I deserve the debt that I'm in. I deserve the distance that I have incurred upon myself relationally. I brought this upon myself. That's how the Psalms use this. It's not just physical waters raging over. It is the turmoil of the soul. And so he says... I have been driven away from your sight. Some of you might have the word yet there. More than likely it should be translated the word how. This sense of how can I look again upon your holy temple? How can I ever get back into your presence? How can I ever have a deep relationship with you? I've blown it. And he says in verse 5, The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the base of, or at the roots of the mountains. And I went down to the land. Whenever you see these phrases, roots of the mountains, or the base of the mountains, Going down into the deep. When it says, I went down into the land. All of these are images used throughout the scriptures of death. Of death. When it talks about, in verse 7, when my life was fainting away. 
This is a sense of drifting into unconsciousness. Like it has gotten so bad that he is about to pass out physically. About ready to die. You get the image. And so in verse 6 he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed up forever. You might have heard the phrase, the gates of Hades. It is when Sheol is talked about in the Old Testament. It's the land of where the dead go. Hades is hell. There's gates there. It's this sense of bars governing. You pass through a gate before you die. He is saying, I am on the very edge of passing through those bars into the land of death. That's where I am. Some of you have experienced this. This past week, I was pulling out of here about 7.30 on Tuesday morning. And as I pulled out, I was going down Hargett Street. And as I was driving down, all of a sudden, I didn't even see it. A guy opens his door while I'm driving down and... His door hits my car, my car hits his door, however that works. Of course, when you open your door, you're stepping a foot out. So, he's stepping a foot out, opening the door, and I hear, wham! Like that. It just came out of nowhere. It's almost like an animal had hit me out of, you know, the clear blue. And I drive, and my heart falls to the floor. And I'm like looking around, and I see that, you know, my side mirror is all cracked up, and it's all pushed in. And I look in my rearview mirror and this guy is standing there looking at his door. And you could tell he was a little shaken up as well. So I pull the car and I turn around and I go back to him and he has already walked towards me. And honestly, I, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong, but you could tell he thought he had made the mistake. But we looked at each other and I said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, yeah, your car looks um, like it's got some scratches and stuff on it. Are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. And I said, it's, it's fine. Let's just go on. And, uh, and so he was, he was just physically kind of shaken up. And um, my car is not worth a ton. So <laughs> it was fine to uh, say, let's add one more scratch to the mix and uh, we'll move on. But just that sense in that one moment, of the heart falling, the anxiety welling up, the thought that I could have hit that person. There's just this major sense of overwhelming, just, did I do something wrong and guilt and replaying it? How could I have done it differently? And that's all in just one little snapshot. Some of you have experienced these kind of things and it's not a quick snapshot. It's a sense that you've gone through sickness. Or someone you know has gone through sickness. And you hear that cancer is the verdict. And the heart falls. And although we try, they're on the brink of death. There's been many who have been on the brink of death. And just the desperation you feel, the helplessness you feel, The sense that I can't fix this. I can't make this go away. But then it applies spiritually. And I know that this happens because one, this is a psalm. 
This is a song that has many references throughout the Old Testament that do this very thing. They take these physical pictures and they call us to look spiritually within the heart. And they say you can be overwhelmed by your guilt in that same type of way. Overwhelmed by your sin. Battling self-condemnation. And everyone in the room is meant to feel strong desperation. It's meant to feel, I cannot fix this. I cannot rescue myself. And now, that's what makes rescue sweet. It makes rescue really sweet. When you know you can't fix it. When you're knocking on death's door. Or you believe you deserve death. You deserve distance. You don't deserve nearness. And God says, in my love, I will be near to you. In my grace, I will rescue you. And it might not be a physical rescue. And many of you have experienced the tragedies and horrors of physical pain that leads to death. But it will be a God who comes near in the midst of that pain. Who doesn't leave. Even though our sin deserves what Jonah has said. I have been driven away from your sight. Will I ever again be able to be in your presence? And this is the beauty of the gospel in this very moment. Not only should we know from this passage the desperate cry for deliverance. But we should know God's gracious rescue. The gospel comes into play in this moment. And it is calling out to us saying, What should you be doing? You should be following your God perfectly. You should be fully surrendering to Him. You should be perfectly loving your neighbor and looking out for others, considering others better than yourself. You should be doing this. And yet, you and I are like Jonah. We run from God. We were like the sailors of chapter 1. What did they do? The reference is in verse 8 of this very passage in chapter 2. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. We give our hearts to worthless things and we make them primary. Timothy talks about it like this. He says, don't set your hope on riches. Set your hope on God who is rich towards you. Takes physical riches and says, says, you can set your hope on something physical. You can set your hope on your family. You can set your hope on your kids. You can set your hope on your money. You can set your hope on your job. You can set your hope on your identity of being good at something. You can set your hope on your religion and being really religious. You can set your hope on anything. And Timothy says, when Paul is telling Timothy to shepherd this church, he says, Set your hope not on things. Set your hope on God. And right now, in the midst of our desperation, we should understand we're like the sailors who set their hope on worthless idols. We're like Jonah who runs away from the living God in order to try to craft our own plan. What must we do? We must live perfectly for our God. And yet we will not be able to do this. 
And so when the people look at Jesus and they say to Jesus, give us a sign. Give us a sign that we can know that you're the Messiah and that I, we should submit our lives to you. You know where he points? He points here. The book of Jonah. And he says, just, you need a sign? You need no other sign than the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What do we see in the passage? Why three days, three nights? What's the sign? The sign is desperate sinners can be forgiven through the gracious work of Jesus Christ. The gracious work of God as Savior. And that God will do it by overcoming the grave. That's why this passage is laden with death language. Because we have a greater problem than schooling our children, than our marriages, than our occupation and all of the trials that come therein. We have a greater problem than the things that we can touch. It's called sin. And sin separates us from God. It says that we should not have an eternity with God unless someone can overcome sin, Satan, and death. And this passage says in verse 6, Yet you, O God, brought up my life from the pit. You brought my life from the pit. The pit is in the Psalms. It is the place of death. You pulled me out of death. And then we see in verse 10 that God says, Okay, fish, spit him out. No longer three days and three nights. He's overcome death through rescue. Church, we are the desperate ones of Jonah 2. We are the ones that are on the brink of death, whether we believe it or not. And we're the ones that have experienced, if we trust in Christ, in Christ alone, for the forgiveness of sins, we have experienced God's gracious rescue. What must you do? You must live perfectly for your God. What can't you do? That. You can't do it. So what must He do? He sent His one and only Son to do what we could not do. To die the death that we justly deserve. He went three days and three nights into Sheol for us. That we might not have to pass eternally into death, but we might be given new life. Jesus Christ did what we could not do. He's the one who did. And therefore, because He is the great rescuer, anyone who trusts not in themselves, this passage is screaming at you and I, Jonah couldn't do it. How easy it is for us to see that Jonah couldn't, but how we have so much trouble seeing that we can't. We can't, just like Jonah couldn't. We are the ones spiritually in the raging sea with the weeds around the ankles dying. And yet Christ did what we couldn't do. We have been rescued from the depths. Friends, this is why when grace comes, 
that there will be a response to the rescue. There will be a response to the rescue. Not only is there a desperate cry for deliverance, not only does our God show up in great power here and rescue a hardened sinner, but now because God is a gracious rescuer, there is a response, a response from Jonah because he sees grace. He sees it. Look at the response. He says in verse 7, My prayer came to you and in your holy temple. He's acknowledging that, the God, our, that God was not distant to him any longer. God came near to him. His prayer came up before him. He realizes now in verse 8 that those who give their lives to worthless things are forsaking the steadfast love of the Lord. And he is saying, I should not be like those sailors were. And yet what's ironic is at the end of chapter 1, it's the sailors who are responding in faith. Doing what? Offering sacrifices because they knew that their sin incurred judgment and vowing that they will continue to thank God for rescuing them. What does Jonah say is his response? Look at verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I'll do what the pagans did. I will sacrifice. I will This was in this time the way you acknowledged your sin. I will repent. And what I have vowed I will pay. The vowing was a refusal to just thank Him once, but it was a thanking Him over and over and over and over again. It was sacrifice upon sacrifice, which we know Jesus Christ paid the once for all price so that we don't have to physically sacrifice anymore. But we call out to Jesus, confessing our sin, asking for forgiveness. Oh, friends. Have you been through? Been through the time when sin was ever before your eyes? Have you gone through things where you're just like, why is all of this happening to me? Why is this trial coming To me at this point. Well we see in the book of Jonah. That the trial came to him. To expose the junk in his heart. When he thought he could live without the presence of God. Now he knows he can't. When he thought he could govern his own life. And it would turn out better. Now he knows that that's not the case. And what does he do? He repents of his sin. He calls out to God. He shares his junk with God. His, the mess of his heart. And he calls out to God for rescue. Everything. Everything in this passage leads us to want this last line as the theme of this passage. And that is salvation therefore. Rescue, deliverance, it belongs wholly to the Lord. He is the only one who can rescue us. He is the only one who is strong enough to deliver our heart. The only one who is strong enough to comfort in pain. The only one who is wise enough to give us wisdom that we need. Our God, salvation, rescue, it belongs wholly to Him. And so, when you read this passage... 
we must say ultimately what Jonah is saying. Everything is to be from a posture of rescue, not resourcefulness. He thought he was resourceful enough. But instead, now what he is seeing is he's almost dead. And everything is from a posture of rescue. Your resourcefulness, it can crush you. And here's what I mean by that. We look forward in these next two chapters to Jonah who has been forgiven so much. You would think, right? If you're swallowed by a fish and you hang out there for three days praying to God. I mean, I get seasick sometimes on the merry-go-round. I know that's a weak confession, but I'm telling you, I get kind of motion sick sometimes. This fish is not just kind of sitting still more than likely. He's moving. He's experiencing all kinds of stuff in the belly of this fish. You would think having experienced the near deathness that he has experienced and God rescuing him in great power, you would think that this message would not be easily forgotten. And what is that? Identify yourself with every sinner on the planet. And yet, what do we see in chapter 4? What do we see? We see that he repented of his outright pagan living and running from God but he did not repent of his self-righteousness. He still thought he was better than someone else. And friends, the repentance of the believer is not just, I'm a sinner that needs rescuing. It is what Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. It is a regular repenting of us trying to place ourselves as better than someone else. We do it all the time. In our marriages, at times, we think ourselves better than our spouses. With our roommates, we think ourselves better than those who are living with us. We think ourselves better than our kids in such a way that we talk down to them and exasperate them. We think ourselves better a ton. And Jonah, repenting over, yes, the outright rebellion of running away from God, but we see God still had to do a driving the gospel deeper into the heart that we must be crushed in our superiority of one another. It's self-righteousness. So everything in this passage is to be from a posture of rescue, not our resourcefulness. And therefore, our song will be, salvation belongs to the Lord. And I end with 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, or chapter 1. This is what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again, alive to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, a home that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us by God's power. And the next words are so beautiful. In this you rejoice. That's where joy comes from. He says, even though you experience various trials, it's in being rescued where joy can run through. Even though trial comes upon you after trial to refine your faith and to bring you nearer to God, we rejoice in rescue.
That's what our God specializes in. And so we rejoice in Him. Let's pray.